the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back as we head into our two this Friday, last Friday before the primaries. And uh, we've had enough Fridays before the primaries. I'm glad it's the last one. But it is a delight to do it with one of my dear friends and one of the greatest political consultants uh, in the country, if not the greatest, George Kaloff. He is the managing partner at the Resolute Group and the president of Data Orbital. George, welcome to the studio. Uh, last Friday before the elections, we knew we needed to bring you in here. So thank you for doing that. Yeah, good as always to to be here. And also, I cannot wait that it is the last Friday before the primary. Yeah, it's been a tough one uh, season. Uh, I was just ruminating a little bit with you off air. For the audience's benefit, uh, the stakes are obviously very high and the passions are high and they should be because it's about the most important stuff, how we plan to govern ourselves. But it's been a rougher season interparty than it ha- intraparty than it has been in recent memory has. It's been a little little hotter than than most uh, most uh, primaries have been in a long time. It has been, and I think Arizona is manifesting and witnessing what we've seen happen nationally. Yeah. Frankly, the the two you know I don't know two five ten in any given moment warring factions within the party. Uh, the stakes are higher. The emotions are definitely high. And as I've joked with a number of people, I feel like anyone who is a political consultant or political, we should have our phones taken away from us the last two weeks before the election because nothing good can come of what we post on social media and how we interact with one another because it's been a long road. Yeah. And again, I get it. I get it. Things are um, things are running hot. But the most important thing, and I know you and I have done a lot of talking about this, is what, what happens uh, on November, uh, on August 3rd. And right. How do we come together as a party to ensure that uh, our values are victorious in November? Well, I'm happy to serve as in, in any way I can as uh, as Reconciliation Central. And to the degree you want to help with that, I, great, we'll do it. That has to be done. We have a bigger enemy. We have a bigger enemy, bigger opponents to defeat. I wanted to bring you in, George, or at least have you uh, talk today and address yourself. Thanks for coming in to this business of polling, which I was just saying in the last hour, you know, it's 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 an art and it's a science that almost every voter relies upon and talks about, but also has a lot of questions about. Um, for example, what kind of polls are the polls you want to look at? Sometimes people talk about cell phone polls. Some talk about landline polls. Some talk about texting. Uh, some talk about other methodologies, if you want to bring any of those up. But when we are talking about the manner of the poll, tell us about what's involved, why some of these are better than others and why others are worse than others. Sure. And I, I would uh, I'd like to start off by saying unless someone is a bad actor. Uh, as pollsters, we don't just make up numbers, right? Right, because at the end of the day, the I don't only think reason, it's even legal. No, it's not one. It's not, but two. We also wouldn't have a business because is it's very verifiable in politics when you make something up. Because at the end of the day, election day is judgment day. And so that's a great point. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. You guys want to have an ongoing business and an ongoing reputation, so you may come up with different numbers, but it's more about methodology. It is. It is. And and look, there are some pollsters like me. I am a partisan pollster. I make no qualms about it. I've never hid the fact I'm a Republican. I'm a Republican consultant. I did a stint at the Republican Party, and yet my data can still be what it is. Yeah. And there are some nonpartisan pollsters that 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 do work in uh, in Arizona as well. And I'll tell you too, we're better off as a state now. We have about three or four pollsters that do work here. When I first started off. 
off. It was myself, and then um, it was OH Predictive Insights when it was its previous iteration, and now we've got a couple of others that have come on the scene that is much better for polling. Uh, but in terms of methodology, look, the, the – Before you do the methodology, uh, on the on the being a partisan pollster, and obviously that means sometimes for the party, sometimes for, on behalf of a client, do you often or even sometimes have to give bad news from a poll to a client? Absolutely. I mean, there's been a number of polls that, that, that folks that are in the know recognize that have been leaked from a survey subscription that we do monthly that have showed campaign clients of mine down. Again, the numbers are what the numbers are. And uh, we have worked, I have worked diligently to ensure that our numbers are beyond reproach. Obviously, as you know, Seth, that doesn't stop people in politics from uh, from still not trying to you know punch your face in or rip your face off or whatever metaphor that I've used. Uh, but at the end of the day, the numbers are what the numbers are. We'll see what happens on Election Day and we'll go from there. Is the best benefit or maybe it's... Uh, Equal, but is the best benefit of a poll internal to the candidate or is do you see voters change their minds about candidates based on polling? In some respects, I could see a candidate that someone may like who is showing no ability to possibly win might shift someone's vote. I do think polling can help stop or help give momentum. Okay. Now, do I think a voter just wholesale makes a decision change because of it? I don't know. I think that that's a lot tougher to quantify. There is something about momentum. It is very clear when you have especially multiple polls that show the same thing, and then you start to have the chatter, and the chatter then results into votes shifting. So, okay, is it the you know is it the poll's fault or the poll's result, or is it the result of individuals that are consuming it that are chattering? It just depends. And so... There is a lot of momentum shifting that happens with uh, with public polling, but also polling has come under negative light. I mean, yeah. honestly, between us and lobbyists, I'm not sure who is more hated nowadays when it comes to uh, the political and policy scene. And I get it because there are bad actors and also polling has been wrong. Yeah. And so there's a lot to continue to unpack every cycle. As we have the, the issue of polling being wrong is kind of an interesting one because, you know, it is it is about the methodology, of course, and about the ability to understand the methodology. But it's also merely a snapshot. I mean, I know that sounds conventional, but people have to remember that what may be true on Monday may not be true on Friday. Yes, it is a snapshot in time. And that's why, look, the gold standard, gold standard is you're doing track polling. So you're in the field consistently. And even that's imperfect because there's going to be a lot of noise, as you can imagine. So we're looking for trend lines. Polling is a snapshot in time. Polling is also meant to represent the audience that we, we think it will. What I mean by that is this. We have to, as pollsters, predict who we expect to vote. So, for example, if we expect the electorate to be 15% under the age of 35 and the electorate ends up being 30% under the age of 35, that poll's going to be wrong. It could be ironclad when it comes to how they've done it methodologically, but we predicted the wrong people to vote. So part of the art behind what happens is me, especially as the head pollster at my firm, I look at every single what we call model, and I ensure that I um, I can allow the model to pass my gut check, which is, okay, the age, gender, uh, geographic location, political affiliation, you name it. That's a big part of what pollsters do right and wrong. But then methodology. Look, live calls are helpful and important. But at this last cycle, live calls were not the the, the most accurate uh, type of polling, even though we have always done live caller surveys exclusively to landline. Does it matter between phones. landline and cell? Yes. I mean, we have to have a significant amount of cell phones. When I first started in this industry, we were at 70-30 landlines to cell phones. We've now shifted to 50-50, if not 60-40 in the opposite direction. And even we as a firm have started grafting in text to web. Again, we're going to see on Tuesday, there's a number of surveys that have come out with a number of different methodologies. methodologies. Let's see which one was able to better capture. And we as a firm, and we have committed, we are going to invest our resources in figuring out I don't want to just 
throw a dart onto the wall and see what methodology, you know, methodology we're going to pick. We want to do it intentionally. And so we're going to invest our resources and time to figure out how to do it in the most accurate way possible, because if we're going to produce data, it has to be accurate. George Kaloff is our guest. George, uh, do, do that again for me. When, when, when polling started, it was what percent land and what percent cell? It was R- se- roughly. Obviously. Yeah, it was about 70 percent landlines okay. and 30 percent cell phone. This is, again, when I first started in about 2014, 2015. And in the last number of years, I mean, look, people don't have landlines anymore. I don't. They just don't. Right. Yeah. And if they do, they don't answer them. Right. Um, we need to reach people on cell phone. But even then, a lot of people now with the spam blockers that the federal right. government, FCC, have allowed the um, uh, they've allowed the companies to go through. All of those calls go through now as spam, but we still get text messages. So now there's additional ways. Then there's what's called panel. So that's an individual like you or me saying, hey, I want to be self-opted in and I want to be given $100 to, to participate. Now that's Sit not in a room like this. Right. And that's not na- randomized necessarily, but now you're on this panel and there's other ways, so on and so forth from there. Um, but it looks like the pollsters that are tending to get it more right are doing a mixture of multiple methodologies. Okay. And... W- I have more questions on methodology in a second. Does a pollster such as yourself or any good pollster, do they sometimes get a result? There's an old saying in the military, if the map doesn't match the ground, the map is wrong. Do you ever get results that you just know, wait, something's really not right here. Something's not. We have to redo it or we have to refigure the methodology on this. 100%. There are polls because there are snapshots in time, but also there's a margin of error and all these other things that we know from a statistical perspective. It feels out of line. It feels out of whack. We have had to redo Can't that. possibly true. It doesn't pass the sniff test. Right, it doesn't. And, and that's why we always, for example, we include questions like, for us in a Republican primary, what's Donald Trump's favorability? Because it's been consistent since January of 2017, right? So we have had what surveys. What is that answer? It's about 75 76% okay. statewide in Arizona. So when we have surveys that dramatically increase or decrease that number, we're like, okay, well, we have to, we we have, we have to pay attention here. We always have what we call baseline questions. That's what essentially holds our feet to the fire internally. And there's all, all kinds of other sort of quality assurance things that we do. But that's a big one because you're right. Sometimes, and look, um, sometimes data isn't correct, but it's how we combine that data with our gut instinct mm-hmm. and then be able to project it out that matters. This is, this is a fascinating discussion with me. If people want to call in and ask questions, too, we can, we can t- happily take your call. 602-508-0960. You're good for a while? Absolutely. I'm Seth Leibson. He's George Kaloff. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Delighted to have George Kaloff in the studio with us. He is the uh, managing partner at the Resolute Group, a political consulting firm, and uh, the president of Data Orbital, which uh, does a lot of polling. And we were talking about uh, polling, the art and the science of it, and I have a few more questions. George is happily uh, happy to take calls on anything as well in the political realm. So, again, 602 0960. We'll get to some in just a moment. Let me let me finish up a couple questions with you on the science and art of polling, though, George, if I can. Uh, other terms people will come across in polls, and sometimes they won't see these things revealed in the poll itself, but I think it's probably important, and it's the distinction between likely and registered voters. Tell people why the gold standard is what and why it is the gold standard. So when you're polling and trying to be predictive of an outcome at an election, which is a lot of what we do at Data Orbital, right? Which is we're trying to predict who's going to win for Senate and governor and you name it. It's not helpful to do registered voter, particularly in the three, four, five, six months in lead up to the election. Why? Because 
Um, let's say Republicans are, you know, in a general election, there are 33% of the population and there's 3% more Republicans and Democrats that are registered, but we expect actually 7% more Republicans to show up to vote. So why would we pull registered voters? Because just because you're registered, that doesn't mean that you vote. And that's what's critical. There's also a significant amount of young people under 35 that are registered, a much lower percentage of them, shocker vote than who? 65 and older. So we have to properly weight what's called weighting. We have to properly weight the survey, and we do that with a likely voter survey versus registered voter. As a compared to, when we have a lot of clients where we do just public policy polling. Well, they don't necessarily care to attach it to an election. So we do do registered voters there, but we're not trying to predict who's going to win on election day because it wouldn't be predictive. George, uh, talk to us about this uh, interesting uh, MOE, margin of error. Talk to us about what that means. So without getting too much into the statistical weeds, the margin of error essentially uh, allows us to be able to predict and see, okay, so if we think someone is winning uh, an election and up by 4%, if the margin of error is 4%, technically speaking, that race could either be tied or that person could be up by eight. And so there's a 4% swing because our margin of error, our ability to have an error rate is at about 4%, so it's plus or minus. So could they be down by four? They could be down by four or up by four. So it's a swing in either direction by four. That's critical. That's critical to note. And then we have something what's called a confidence interval, usually at 95 or 99. If we're 95%, that means that they're 95% confident that the margin, that the results in that margin of error or 99% confident. So again, in public policy polling and public opinion polling, usually it's 95% confidence interval. And usually, for example, in a state like Arizona, it's about a 4.16% margin of error. But that's why we try to repeat surveys and then have other pollsters you know, we like when multiple pollsters are there because we want to check our work, right? right. It's the science in right. the way that you would do peer-reviewed work, and which is why a firm like ours, not only do we release the results, Seth, we release everything. We release our work, what's called our cross-tabs, our, cross our top lines. We release it all, but not everyone does that, and that's problematic because then we can't check the work. George, uh, the confidence interval, the 95 or 99 percent confidence interval, is that based on size of survey, population of the survey, or is that based on other factors? It's it's based on the, the number of respondents, the end value, but also based on the size of the population that we're surveying. So okay. if you're surveying a town of 50,000 people, it's different than surveying a, a state of 5 million people, depending on the sample size there. So that really gets me to the, the one thing I've never understood in all of this, which is the sample size. Because we'll see uh, what, what 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 kinds of sample sizes are we seeing in the polls in Arizona? Somewhere between four and eight hundred, somewhere yeah, usually four, really four and six hundred. Four and six hundred. Like yes. And so you know, the conventional person walking down the street would say, "Well, you know, okay, state of eight million. I don't know how many registered voters are there. How many? Uh, four point three, four and a half of that is four four million. Uh, how 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 am I going to base anything on what six hundred people say? But that's where the science of it is. That's right? where the statistics come in. And look, even even more crazy than that, you take a a state the size of Arizona, and then you compare nationally. Most national surveys are about 1,500 to 2,000. You're like, how the heck do you just multiply by four or five for a country that's like 100x right, right, the right. state of Arizona? Yeah, you know, it gets arithmetically more complex. Right, but from way. a right. statistical right. perspective, again, without getting into the weeds, that's how it works. You don't need an, um, um, you know, a million respondents to factor out 330 or 340 million Americans. You need a couple thousand if you get them representative of the, of the state, of the country. So what I mean by that in Arizona we need to ensure that 60% of our samples from Maricopa and 15s from Pima and so on and so forth. And we do it on gender and age and ethnicity 
and your educational attainment. So how far you've gotten from an education perspective, where you live. So there's multiple factors, your party affiliation. And we use that based on what you tell us on the, on the call and what also is on your voter file. So we take it through multiple different layers of checks to ensure that we're getting the accurate sample. Do you talk to or poll or survey 5,000 or some large number to get the 600? You have to, right? Because you have to filter and weed out to do exactly what you just said. You're looking to get my answer. You're looking to, I'm guessing, you, this is a question. You're, you're looking to say, well, is this guy... Are, is he representative of 10,000 sets sure, or that, sure. right? That's the point. And, and the other thing is as much as we like to think we are fun and everyone wants to sit and spend 10 minutes of their time talking to a political polling company and giving us the respondents they don't want to. And so we have to talk to a significant number of people, which is why it's on us as a polling industry to figure out more creative ways, which is where text to web comes in. And look, it's not perfect. No methodology is perfect. Calling landlines isn't perfect because we know a whole chunk of the population don't even know what a landline is, let alone have one in their home anymore, regardless of the age, by the way. Uh, and so we have to get creative in terms of how we are garnering these samples to ensure that, like what you said, we are finding people and, and really not individuals, but groupings of people that are then representative. So if we find enough Republican women, they are supposed to represent broader Republican women or Republican women over 55 or so. But it so must forth. be different from Yavapai County to Pima, right? That's 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 absolutely true, which is why we need to get certain percentage samples from each county and each congressional district. Mm-hmm. So we weighed it geographically by region. Uh, north, South, Maricopa, Pima, and then we also weighted by our nine congressional districts. And sometimes we've weighted it by groupings of legislative districts because we need to get that particular. Fantastic. Before we take the break and go to calls, last question on on this is: uh, Are there certain kinds of things, maybe against your interest, answers? Are there certain kinds of things that are impossible or much harder to pull than others? There are. Look, races where you have to pick two or pick three are very difficult. Trying to replicate the experience, so Corporation Commission is one example. Trying to replicate the experience of three people being on the ballot. You go into a voting booth or you look at your ballot and you say, you can pick up to two people. We have a thing that's called an undervote, right? So you go vote, Seth, or I go vote, and we vote for one individual and not the other, and we leave off our other vote. That's very difficult to track in a survey. State House races. There's six people running in Legislative District 4, which is here in this uh, uh, where the studio is, right? Yeah. Uh, there's six individuals running. Right. We have to pick two from six. Polling State House races or Corporation Commission, pick two, pick three. They are very difficult, which is why ranked choice voting, candidly, is very difficult to pull. Uh, one for one binary choice, do you vote for X or do you vote for Y or Z? And you have one choice. Those are much statistically easier to survey than a pick two or a pick three. Fantastic. We'll get to calls and some more conversation, your calls and more conversation with me and George. Me and George? Yes. When we come right back, as we go to break, let me put in a word for our sponsor, the Midas Gold Group. Every day, harmful decisions by this administration are hurting our economy more and more, which means hurting you, your investments and savings more and more. Inflation, 41-year high, your money's worth less and less. And we're in a debate about whether we're in a recession or not already. The good news is that when investments fall, gold traditionally holds its value, as do other precious metals. Call the Midas Gold Group, the veteran-owned Midas Gold Group, to talk about diversifying your investments with precious metals. I own precious metals from them. Seb Gorka does. Thousands of you do. And more of you can by going to MidasGoldGroup.com. That's MidasGoldGroup.com or 480-360-3000. 
Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 602-508-0960. George Kaloff is our guest from the Resolute Group as well as Data Orbital. Happy to take your calls on anything, public policy, polling, you name it. Before we go to calls, I keep threatening to go to calls. We will in just a moment. But before we do that, George, you were telling me a story off air. I think the audience would love it because it illustrates so much about um, the arrogance of certain kinds of candidates, but also an insight into everything we've talked about. The issue of polling and Hillary Clinton in 2016. Sure. So in the aftermath uh, of 2016, when people are trying to unpack how it was that someone like Donald Trump could become president of the United States of America, there was a particular story in a long form article that I that I read. And one thing really caught my eye. I remember distinctly this this moment, too, when Vice President at the time, uh, you know, nominee Pence went to Kalamazoo, Michigan, and then Trump was somewhere in the West Coast. But they were going to, for people like us and random person, like obscure, quote unquote, cities, not major cities. And Hillary was in, again, they were in Kalamazoo and Hillary was in Philadelphia and was in these bright blue urban places. And what ended up happening is there was a statistical um, analysis and model that the Clinton campaign was doing and using that was actually contradicting what they were seeing on the ground and was contradicting how Trump was playing out the race, and yet they still followed it because— The map and the ground were disagreeing right? dramatically. Because data was king, and they didn't combine their gut. And I always preach this to clients. I said, look, even as a pollster— and this is not for me just to toot my own horn and say I'm not the best you know, consultant. There's all kinds of things that I've gotten wrong, but— but what I do is I take the data and I go through almost like game theory scenarios in my mind. I'm like, okay, why could this data be wrong? How could this data be wrong? And I do a gut check. Data is only as good as how we use it. We have to be able to internalize that data, then put it out. And again, in that scenario, the Clinton campaign took data. They did not do any gut checked. They followed the data as gospel, to use that phrase, and they were wrong. And the Trump campaign had data too, of course, but they also were following what was happening on the ground. It's critical to use data and not to be forced and mandated and led by data. You want to be data informed. <laughs> Excuse me. I remember looking at some of the um, some of the uh, outcomes in 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 those precious states of Wisconsin and Michigan. You were just talking about Michigan, right? And uh, it was interesting, as I recall, what the Hillary Clinton campaign versus the Donald Trump campaign saw in those states. And how it seemed like the Hillary Clinton campaign was totally deaf to what was going on with the concerns in those people. So, for example, I forget what city it was in Michigan or Wisconsin. You may know it doesn't matter. But it it was one of these cities that had been a a very successful or at least good industrial town for many, many decades. And it stopped being so because of the economy and because of things that washed it out. And Donald Trump spent time and resources there, Hillary Clinton's, to talk about the economy, to talk about trade, to talk about manufacturing and bringing it back. And Hillary Clinton sent Ted Danson and his wife, uh, Steenburgen, Mary Steenburgen, to talk about global warming. Mm-hmm. And that, they, you know, that that was, I mean, I don't know what they were reading, but they weren't reading the ground. Yeah. Middle America and is the loose phrase that we always use, right? The things between the coasts, flyover country, which is obviously very, actually, I think, demeaning uh, to just say there are millions of Americans there, as there are thousands of Arizonans in rural Arizona. Those voters matter. And what happens in the 40 percent of the vote that doesn't come from Maricopa County matters. And look, there has been a trend. Republicans have been taking that vote seriously. Trump took that vote seriously. Clinton didn't. Like I said, she rallied on the day before the election in Philadelphia, where Philadelphia was already going to go her way. Yeah. Right. But she was trying to run up the score. What from 
91 to 92 percent. Uh, but Kalamazoo, Michigan, and what happened in rural Wisconsin and Waukesha and different places, you needed those votes, and Donald Trump got those votes, and he ended up getting the electoral votes that he needed. And the same thing's going to play out in Arizona in November. Republicans run up the score in rural Arizona because those voters are not going to be forgotten, and there is a realignment. And I frankly, I think the realignment is almost fairly set in terms of the uh, non-college-educated working-class voters coming there, you know, coming over to the Republican Party, but staying with the Republican Party. Yeah, I, it, it, we'll talk about that in the next break. But I wanted to work this call in. This, Corey, you've been very patient uh, in Buckeye. You're on with George uh, and myself. Go ahead, Corey. Hey, yes. Um, you know, with all the talk on the economy and this sort of the uh, pushback on recession, uh, it just triggered a thought when um, a few months ago, Biden called in the uh, press corps to talk about um, you know, more favorably coverage of the economy, right? And specific, specifically the economy, right? Because even the mainstream media was starting to sh- talk about it like it, like it was, right? And to the radio on a few different dials, and you know, scrolling around through the internet, I have yet to see any voices sort of bring that thought back up when we're questioning why it's so hard to get them to say recession is in play. What's the question? That they, oh, okay. I think I follow what you're the, saying, Corey. Why, why is the media not calling him out on the fact and the definition of the recession? Yes, yeah. and, and I think back to a few months ago when... When they were a little this bit. Administration yeah. was, well, when this administration had that meeting with the press corps, Asking for more favorable. All right, I got to hit the break. I think I get it, and we'll address it when we come right back. Thank you, Corey. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. It is a delight to have George Kaloff in studio with us, a consultant, pollster from the Resolute Group and Data Orbital. Had an interesting question from Corey a few moments ago, George. The press original uh, a couple months back was asking a few tough questions, a few, not a lot, and not strong questions, but tough questions about the Biden administration and the economy. Um, the Biden administration seemed to have corralled them in. I have a blanket warning, and I don't know if, if you agree with it, George, or not, but whenever I see a pundit on TV say something like, well, when you've lost the Washington Post because they ran one editorial against Biden or something, or when you lost the New York Times, or when they put in a negative statement, <clears throat> I, t- I tell people, you know, just give them two days. This is nothing to rest your laurels on. They are going to fall in line. It probably won't even take two days, but it's certainly not going to take more than three. The idea that the New York Times or the Washington Post or CNN is ever going to turn on this administration and not carry their water for them, as we we see very clearly they are doing with the very definition of recession to wit. Anyway, I don't know if you if you have a different thought on this, but the other question that might be attendant to it in 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 the polling uh, business, George, is is it truly still just the economy? Stupid. Take take those questions, however, you, or those thoughts, however you want those. Getting excited about the Washington Post or CNN writing one negative story is like me getting excited, which I did, about gas going down by 20 cents after they've raised it by $3. Okay. So you, so the, 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 the point I make with that is that it's not going to be a wholesale turn, right? We get a story here, a story there. We get a glimmer of hope. And then sure enough, we are uh, disappointed when they say the next stupid article, even if it's not about Biden, about some other godforsaken thing where they you know side with bureaucrats over parents or whatever it may be. Uh, but look, I... And we have spent a lot of time on this show and you have spent a lot of time on the show 
talking about cultural issues and their importance. But this is the thing I would contend. It is still the economy stupid. And what do I mean by that? Some of these cultural issues that we're talking about are kitchen table issues. We're just trying to look at them holistically. So it is still about the economy. It is still about parents feeling secure that they can feed their kids, but also they can send their kids to school without indoctrination, but also so that they can allow their kids to play outside without fear that something's going to happen. So it's about safe communities. It's about secure borders. It's about schools. It's about low taxes. It's about being able to go fill up your gas tank. All of it is together. And so look, as we pivot from the Republican primary and the Democratic primary into the general election, what's going to win this for Republicans? And yes, I, I even before the primary, I will say it this way. What's going to win this for Republicans in November is the fact that the Democrats have overreached. They have absolutely demolished the economy, destroyed any any figment of, of imagination that we had that Biden would be even halfway decent. And they have done so quicker than any of us could have ever imagined. And yes, Republicans are going to be the beneficiaries of that. But then what? Then we have to cast the vision mm -hmm. to actually get us solutions that we believe are correct and not just sit in opposing. So the economy is critical. We have no hope for the for the media to, to back us. We need to scream it from the rooftops and mobilize average Americans and average Arizonans, which, Seth, we are seeing. I have never had more random people, and when I say random, people that are not in our bubbles talk to me about politics than I have in the last year, year and a half. People are fed up and done and just so demoralized with what they're seeing. Is there a phrase for a high interest election or something like that where you where, where the, 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 describing the phenomenon you're talking about? I guess, I guess engagement is yeah, the phrase. Yeah, high engagement, it. high turnout. It's going to be that. We're going to have high turnout in the primary even though, and as our firm has been saying, uh, there's a lot less ballots that have been turned in thus far than in the two past primary elections. I think the general election is going to be monstrous for a midterm, for a non-presidential. long lines on Tuesday. I mean, look, I think there's going to be more people that have voted day of than we've probably had in the last decade, decade and a half. Interesting. Well, people think, I mean, on that point of the culture and the economy, I, I'm glad you, you put it the way you did. Uh, it's, it's to me, it's, 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 a, it's a division that doesn't need to exist. I mean, people think I get dorky or whatever when I when I remind people that the word economy comes from the Greek okonomio, which means household management. I mean, I think that I say it because I think that's the way we need to think about it. And I think we err when we divorce these household matters, these kitchen table issues, what sometimes we refer to as our cultural issues from the economy, because it is part of you can't tell me crime is not an economic issue. One hundred percent. And that's what we did well, the in the 90s. Amendment. That's what we did in the 90s and 2000s, Seth. We divorced these things from each right, other. Right. And they didn't we, last. It did the wins did not last. And it, we acted as if Republic or as if voters had different wings of their brain that were divorced from each other. Like you said, their economic brain and their cultural brain and their faith brain. It, it doesn't. I mean, that's not how a person works. We know that we care about every. I've got two kids. We care about the way that they learn and our ability to put food on the table and their safety all at once. Why would we divorce them? And we now have a new phenomenon, which is combining all of them. And look, it's manifesting in, in different things and populism. People throw out all kinds of buzzwords. But the point that I get excited about is that cultural issues are not just back on the table. They are the tip of the spear. And when I say cultural, to your point, we mean economic, we mean cultural, we mean social conservative, all of it. It is the whole person, and we are in the majority there if we can package it in the right way. I know that we are. I am confident that we are. Yeah, I mean, it takes an awful lot of energy for a parent I mean, even in a two-parent family, but now think about a one-parent family. It takes an awful lot of energy for a parent to fight City Hall or, in this case, a school board. I mean, I think at the end of the day, George, most Americans want their government to be something they don't have to think about very much. 
and they want their kid to go to a school that they don't have to think about very much. The last parent thing a parent ever wants is a call from school or have to go down there if they don't need to or to fight them. It's hard and it, people are busy and that's a cultural economic decision too. It is, and that's what our founders understood. Government was supposed to be in its place and was supposed to have its role, and then they were supposed to get out of the way. And that's the whole reason why the American experiment is what it is today, uh, 200-some years later. But we have diverged from that because there's a political party that believes that the government and every manifestation of it knows better than you and I and rank-and-file conservatives and, frankly, people of faith. They know better than us about a whole host of things, Mm -hmm. right, Mm -hmm. about how we conduct ourselves with ourselves, how we conduct ourselves with our kids, how we should conduct ourselves in our businesses, in our churches, outside of our churches and synagogues, you name it. And that's where we know, and we use this phrase all the time, they have overreached and then some. That's just not the way that the American psyche is. They don't want government in their lives every day. We shouldn't be thinking about it, but we are because government keeps in this day and age, especially in the Biden administration, they keep redefining every word that we've ever known to mean something else. No, I'll go further. We shouldn't be thinking about politics. It's against your and my interests, but we shouldn't be thinking about politics as much as we do either. I love the C.S. Lewis line. A man should think about politics as a sick man thinks about medicine, what you need when things are going wrong. The reason we're so consumed with politics is things are going wrong. Yeah. Now, from the Disney Channel to ESPN, no matter what we do, when we do it, how we do it, we're always politics 24-7. And it is. As someone who's in politics, and I I know you appreciate this, Seth, sometimes we just want to watch sports. Yeah. Well, (laughs) or, you know, what what would be my answer? Magnum P.I. Reruns. (laughs) Reruns. The original. (laughs) The original. There's only one Magnum. George and I will come back with a few concluding thoughts when we come right back. Uh, As I go to break, uh, let me put in a word for why. Refi, if you're looking for a remarkable investment opportunity, do please check out my friends at Why Refi. These are investors who do really well by doing good for others, and you can too. They're offering a fixed no-load interest rate up to 10.25% return for investors, all in a collateralized and secure portfolio. Why Refi is a due diligence firm. They are based here locally. You can visit with them if you like. They won't give you a sales pitch. They'll just tell you what it is that they do and let it speak for itself. If you want to meet with them or talk to them, 855-316-3087, 855-316-3087, or check them out online at investyrefi.com. The word invest, the letter Y, R-E-F-Y.com, investyrefi.com. George and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, George Kaloff has been uh, our guest, generous with his time and brain. And I uh, wanted to take the last few minutes in this segment uh, to talk about one of the races that is sometimes called a down-ballot race. But it really is the race that encompasses everything we have been talking about on the issue of education. And that's the race for the superintendent's uh, for the superintendent of public instruction, George and I have been very vocal about our support for one of the candidates, namely Sherry Sapir. George, talk to us about how that race is shaping up, what that's looking like, and why we like Sherry so much. So last week we talked about how there were still about 60, 70 percent undecided. That number has dropped still amazingly, though, in the mid-40s in the latest survey by uh, OH Predictive Insights that came out. But the thing that's critical and I think the thing that we want to highlight is it looks like there is – momentum there. There is a a concentration and maybe a tipping point, to use the phrase um, of a very famous book that she may have gotten to that shows her surging and now an essential tie for first place. There's still 45% of people that are undecided. We know there's still also about 50% of likely Republican ballots that are out. There is still time and an ability for folks that want to ensure that we win in November and we have a parent-focused, parent-first 
um, school options leader, a superintendent of public instruction. We we have the ability to get Sherry across the line. Folks need to remember that when we get out and vote uh, on Election Day. But there there looks to be good news from a survey research perspective that shows that there's momentum and there's a surging, which is where you want to be going into Election Day. You want upward momentum, not downward momentum. And it's clear she has a significant upward momentum. You know, it dawns on me as you're talking about Sherry, George, uh, and, and, and I don't I don't like to do politics too much this way, but it has been true. As a as a pejorative against as a as a as a battering ram against the Republican Party that we were the party of white men can't say that about Arizona and the Republican Party now when you look at our slate of candidates when you look at some of these fabulous candidates uh, you you and I may be divided on some of them but when you look at the governor's race we're going to have a female Republican governor when you look at uh, you know Secretary of State you know hope you have some great candidates I'm for Shauna Bullock for example Sherry Sapir the legislative we like Vera Gibran these strong women in the Republican Party I'm probably missing others just because I have a short-term memory problem. But but it, it's not true about the Republican Party anymore, that the white male thing, that's just not it anymore, is it? No, and, and I can't remember uh, exactly the statistic, but we've had more uh, female governors than most other states in the country. We have a proud legacy of that. And look, is is to your point, I don't like identity politics either, but I'm also someone who wasn't from here. I'm an immigrant. And it is important to always highlight that the Republican Party is the party of opportunity and vision in the future, which is why folks like us are attracted to it. That's the bottom line. That is the bottom line. George, thanks for your hour. Really appreciate you. George Kalev has been our guest from the Resolute Group and Data Orbital. Don't go away. We'll be right back. The great Brandon J. Weikert uh, for the second time this week to make up for a planned absence he has next week, which brings up a really interesting theological question. Can you sin in advance of knowing you need an abs- absolution for it? No, you can't. I'm Seth Levinson. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.